Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and aloha. Welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Dennis Wu, past chair of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Directors, and your chair for today's special program with Erica Maritsuka, Deputy Assistant to President Biden and White House Senator Liaison for Asian Americans, Native American Hawaiians, and Pacific Islander communities. This program is being held in partnership with SF Cause, which stands for San Francisco Community Alliance for Unity, Safety, and Education. I'm the chair for SF Cause. We wish to thank our 14 promotional partners for this program, which include Ding TV, Ascend, AAPI Silicon Valley, Asian American Parents Association, Bay Area Chinese Radio, Bay Area Youth, Civic Leadership Academy, Heista, Impression Art Culture, India Currents, KTSF 26, Mountie Jade West, National Asian American United, the Mentoring Club. We also want to remind you to please submit questions via the chat room next to your screen. Our moderator, Dion Lim from ABC7 TV News in San Francisco, will get to as many questions as possible later in the program. And now, to introduce this evening's distinguished speaker, California State Assemblyman Evan Lowe, who represents Silicon Valley and is also Vice Chair of the Asian and Pacific Islander Legislative Caucus. Evan? Thank you so very much. Happy Friday to all of you. What a way to spend our Friday evening and also respect your valuable time. Thank you so very much for joining us. First off, thank you so very much to the Commonwealth Club for hosting this important event tonight. We appreciate the solidarity and the allyship for discussion with Erica Mortsugu, the highest ranking Asian Pacific Islander American in our White House. And of course, our own Bay Area proud treasure, Dion Lim. And I'm looking forward to that conversation as well. In fact, it is dinner time here in the Bay Area, and I brought my very own um, mooncake to join in that conversation while we listen. Uh, but as we get into this important topic, like so many individuals, we left ourselves wondering what comes next after all of this AAPI hate. I have the pleasure and distinction of serving as a state legislator representing San Jose and Silicon Valley, home to living civil rights icons like Norman Mineta and Mike Honda. And we've come so far away in which the city of San Jose once had five Chinatowns, which unfortunately in our dark history, they were actually burnt down and sanctioned by the city council to be burnt down. So it's important that we remember our history as we fast forward to today and help to ensure that the next generation remembers the importance of social justice. 
We've seen this shocking increase in racism and xenophobia. And since the start of the pandemic, the Stop AAPI Hate project has received nearly 6,000 plus reports of hate incidences. And most troubling, we've seen a surge in attacks towards our elderly population as well. As you also may know, we're coming upon the census and the count of our numbers. And here in the Bay Area, many of the counties, whether it be San Francisco, Santa Clara, Alameda County, and San Mateo, consists of close to 40% Asian Pacific Islanders, the largest demographic in our region. So it just goes to show that it's important that our communities stay safe. And that's part of this conversation here at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level. And so we've asked for help. We've asked for help at the local level and at the state level. In fact, at the state level, we just budgeted close to $150 million in stopping AAPI hate. This is the largest budget augmentation in any other state in the nation, and that's in California. But at the same time, we asked for help, a call to action. The need is significant, and this is righteous anger. Fortunately, our president has listened and has heard us. And on April 14th, 2001, Erica was appointed the deputy assistant to the president and the liaison to our AAPI community. If you'll allow me an opportunity then to read a bio, because this deserves some justice about the level of distinction of our strong AAPI public servants. Erica has a diverse and deep experience also on the Capitol, in the Capitol, I should say, and within governmental agencies, including serving as the general counsel for Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, from whom she provided legislative and political and strategic counsel and managed the senator's liaison and affairs on the judiciary, civil rights, and economic policies. We want to all again thank Erica for joining us here today. We also want to share a bit of basic pride as well that she has Bay Area roots, and we look forward to helping giving a Bay Area welcome again. So I know that we're excited about this conversation with Dion, but first off, would you please join me in giving a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to Erica Moritsugu. Welcome. Aloha, y'all. Um, thank you, Assemblymember, uh, Mr. Chair, for that generous introduction. Um, Evan, your, your, your leadership is so important, both nationally and locally. Um, and I, I kind of personally view it as uh, one of these turning points um, in terms of leadership and power um, for the strength of this new chapter in AAN and HPI empowerment. I want to thank the Commonwealth Club of California, SF Cause, and all of the organizations who come together to promote and organize this event tonight. And special thanks in particular to Dennis Wu, Drew Min, Miley Tan, Joel Wong, Michael Lee Ming Wong, Wendy Wong, and Julian Chang for making this evening possible and for the honor of this invitation. Also, a big thank you to Dion Lim for moderating tonight. I'm thrilled at the prospect of being in conversation with you. Um, and lastly, and most importantly, thank you to all of you at home or still at the office or in traffic for, for joining us this evening. It's, um, it's humbling to know that you chose to spend this Friday night with me. Um, as, as the Assemblyman said, I, I serve as the Deputy Assistant to the President and Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander Senior Liaison at the White House. Serving in this historic first ever position, 
I'm a member of the president's senior staff as the voice in the White House and the West Wing, lifting up the hopes and the needs of our AA and NHPI communities in our administration's policies, politics, and engagement. It's a new role. It was created in March, and, and as Evan mentioned, I was um, selected for it and seated in April. And I'm charged with making sure that the richness and diversity of our communities are no longer invisible and that the impacts of the administration's policies are inclusive of our communities and also communicated to our communities. So it's critical to the success of our administration and our community both, that we have open lines of communication, that we can engage in a dynamic dialogue, that you have access and trust to tell us where we're getting it right, where we can do better, and where we've got it wrong. So in my role, I'll address the needs of the AAN and HPI communities by working closely with partners um, like the White House Office of Public Engagement, which is a traditional office in, in the White House, which conducts our outreach to the national AAN and HPI um, nonprofit organizations, and also with the White House Initiative on Asian American Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, which serves as um, a link for our local community leaders and community members outside of the Beltway to the resources of the federal government. Um, I've, I've spent my entire life as a professional and as a volunteer fighting for social justice and the empowerment of communities and individuals. And I get to continue to do that at this White House, executing on the president and vice president's longstanding commitment to our community, knowing that we have the confidence of a president who sees us and hears us and values us. And is committed to providing us with the security and safety and that opportunity that we should expect and we can now hope for. So as we, as we all know, the president and vice president took office during the middle, I hope it was the middle of a pandemic and, and during a dramatic and visible spike in anti-Asian hate and violence. So from the beginning of his administration, the president's been swift to address the disproportionate impact these overlapping crises have had on the AAN and HPI communities. That's why on his first day in office, the president signed an executive order advancing racial equity throughout the federal government. During his first week in office, the president issued a presidential memorandum condemning racism, xenophobia, and intolerance against the AAN and HPI communities to address that spike in anti-Asian hate and violence. And in May, the president signed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act that passed by an overwhelming bipartisan majority out of the House and the Senate. Um, that same month, President Biden also took another important action by signing an executive order to advance equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. And that executive order establishes, well, reestablishes the White House initiative, sorry, it reestablishes and expands the White House initiative on AAN and HPIs and a renewed advisory commission that'll provide recommendations to the president on AAN and HPI policies and priorities. So this is an administration that recognizes that in, in addition to combating anti-Asian hate, we also have to confront an economic crisis and address the economic and racial inequalities that have persisted in our country for generations. The president's approach to addressing these challenges is rooted in the idea that we're all created equal and deserving of dignity, opportunity, and the ability to provide for ourselves and our families. So to that end, the president took significant steps towards tackling poverty and building prosperity with his Build Back Better agenda, which will support our engines of growth in the economy, cut taxes, and lower costs for our working families. The Build Back Better agenda will have a profound impact on the AAN and HPI communities. It'll lower costs, strengthen our economy, make long-term and long overdue investments in our infrastructure and support our technology industries. So um, let, me, let me provide a, 
few examples. So, so first, in terms of lowering costs, the president's plan will lower costs for working families. Just to call out a few of the provisions that I think that this diverse group care about, no matter where you live, how you work, where you work, and where and how you provide care and support for your loved ones, it lowers child's care and family care costs, lowers health care costs, and cuts taxes. So first, it'll lower costs with um, and make historic investments in our care economy. Only 47, I'm sorry, 57.9% of all three and four-year-old Asian American children are enrolled in preschool or kindergarten programs. And half of Asian American women live with there are either no child care providers or so few options that there are more than three times as many children as licensed care child care slots. That's a child care desert. This lack of affordable child care contributes to the fact that Asian American women have seen a 2.9 percentage point drop in labor force participation. And that's why President Biden's plan lowers child care costs and makes universal preschool a reality. It also institutes 12 weeks of comprehensive paid family and medical leave. It's something that you all have pioneered in California, so you're familiar with it, but we get to share the wealth now based on your good example so that our community members don't have to make the impossible choice between caring for themselves or a loved one on the one hand or a paycheck on the other. This is particularly important for many of us in the Asian American community in the sandwich generation or who live in multi-generational households like I was raised. Another example, it will lower healthcare costs. More than 1.5 million Asian American Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders were uninsured in 2019 before President Biden took office. Um, coverage under the Affordable Care Act was too expensive for many families and almost 1.3 million people of color were locked out of coverage because their state refused to expand Medicaid. President Biden's plan lowers health care costs for those buying coverage through the ACA by extending the American Rescue Plan's cost savings, which helps 197,000 uninsured Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander people save an average of $50 per person per month and allowing more than 150,000 uninsured Asian American Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders to gain coverage. The plan also adds dental, vision, and hearing coverage for the more than 2.3 million AANNHPIs on Medicare and closes the Medicaid gap for low-income Americans. Did I mention that it's going to cut taxes? 9% of Asian American families and 16% of Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander families fall below the poverty line. They struggle to pay for expenses like food, rent, health care, and transportation. And that's why President Biden's plan is going to extend the child's tax credit expansion in the American Rescue Plan that was enacted earlier this year, lowering taxes for middle-class families by providing the families of more than 66 million kids and 600,000 Asian American Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders in the U.S. a major tax cut, cutting the AANNHPI poverty rate by 21.7%. The president's agenda also permanently extends the American Rescue Plan's increase to the earned income tax credit from $543 to $1,502. This will benefit roughly 17 million low-wage workers, including cashiers, cooks, delivery drivers, food preparation workers, and child care providers. Does anybody know any of those? The Build Back Better plan will achieve all of this while investing in workforce training, clean jobs, and teachers and schools. So besides these kitchen table issues that have got to be friends of mine with these kind of stay awake at night issues, another big bucket in the Build Back Better agenda um, is the long-term and long overdue investments in our infrastructure. So to address the economic disparities in our economy and the consequences of decades 
and disinvestment in America's infrastructure that have fallen heavily on communities of color. Um, just to illustrate a few examples of the impacts these investments um, have, I call out the provisions that make housing more affordable, improve public transit, and invest in the clean energy grid. So first, 26% of Asian American renters and 27% of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islander renters pay over half of their income in rent. That's why the administration's agenda is gonna help lower housing costs and increase the supply of affordable housing through tax credits and government financing, including construction and rehabilitating more than 1 million sustainable rental housing units and more than 500,000 homes that working families can afford. It'll also make investments to preserve existing public housing as well as to remove lead-based paint from housing units. Another example, the administration's agenda is gonna make historic investments in public transit, reducing commute times, and creating more economic opportunities for communities of color. Asian Americans and African Americans commute by public transit at nearly four times the rate of white workers. The administration's proposal invests $48.5 billion to modernize and build new transit and to clear the backlog in public transit repairs. It will also replace thousands of transit vehicles, including buses, with clean zero emission vehicles. As we know, Investments in public transit help people get better jobs with higher wages and increases economic growth and productivity. That's why we wanna make the $110 billion investment towards building new roads and bridges that'll make commutes safer, save small businesses money and time on transportation, make small rural businesses more accessible and create an influx of contracts for small construction and manufacturing businesses. Final example is that the administration's agenda is going to make investments in a clean energy grid to mitigate the disparate impacts of pollution on communities of color. Black, Latinx, AAN, and HPI and Native communities are more likely to be burdened by pollution. So the Build Back Better plan meets this challenge by making the single largest investment in clean transmission in American history, reducing pollution, creating clean jobs, while protecting communities from extreme weather, wildfire, and other natural disasters. These critical investments are first steps in advancing equity and racial justice throughout our economy. And I'll ensure that the AN and HPI and the other communities of color that we're in allyship and adjacent to and neighbors in our community get a fair shot at the American dream. So finally, I did want to spotlight some of the infrastructure investments that'll have a profound impact on Silicon Valley and the tech industry. In addition to the $100 billion allocated for greater broadband access, $50 billion is committed to addressing domestic semiconductor shortages, shoring up American supply chain of chip manufacturing, improving biotechnology and advanced battery technologies, and bringing more R&D opportunities to the U.S. So look, President Biden promised to build back, not to the way things were, but to build back better, to build a fair economy that deals everybody in. And the Build Back Better agenda does just that. And as you can see from this bare summary, even though it sounded like a long list, because it is, but there's a longer list of highlights that I've described from the national agenda. There are a few of any priorities of the administration that are, are number one, deeply impactful to the AAN and HPI community. And number two, couldn't be better informed without the input and perspective of the AAN and HPI community. And that's why it's such an honor to be here with you today, why this dialogue and access, not just your access to me, but your generosity and sharing back your perspectives are so critical. It's one of the many reasons that I'm so grateful to the organizers for this event, who've made sure that we make space for audience questions and, and also 
to set up a special event tomorrow. The anti-Asian hate and economic issues facing our Chinatowns. It's at three o'clock. Dennis, do you see what I did there? We can drop the link in. Um, I can't do the chat, but somebody else can. Um, and, and it's featuring local electeds and community leaders and community members um, so that I actually have the opportunity to listen to what's happening on the ground and to learn from you. Look, we're about eight months into the administration and the White House is committed to working with all segments of the ANNHPI communities and all geographies and all walks of life. We're gonna to continue to work hand in hand with all y'all to find solutions to the problems and challenges that are facing us today. And uh, maybe we'll find some opportunities to come together to uh, celebrate too. So again, just mahalo for the opportunity to share this space with you to show off about my pride in this administration and its vision for our communities and for our nation. And I get to pause now um, and turn it over to my new dear friend, Yan Lim, um, so that we can share some space and dialogue here too. Thank you. Oh my goodness, Erica, first off, my mind is blown by all of the stats, all of the facts. Many of them I did not know, and I know many Asian Americans and people who are watching this tonight have no idea about. So thank you for that. I may have to ask you for some cliff notes a little bit later so I can keep those stats on hand next time I do my reporting. And then also I wish everyone who is watching could feel my heart right now because it is bursting through my chest because for the first time we have someone like you in a position you are in. And we are going to talk about that in our discussion. So yeah, a virtual round of applause, please, for Erica. This is such a monumental appointment. Before we start our conversation, if it's okay, I'd like to take a few moments to share why being here is so important to me. Because for all of you who don't know, maybe you're not familiar with my work. My name is Dion Lim. I'm a news anchor. I'm a reporter. I'm an author. Shameless plug behind me that direction. And really, I have been at the forefront of spearheading the conversation, the coverage of the hate, the discrimination, the attacks on Asian Americans, not just physical ones, but on us as a culture, and really pushing it into the mainstream media, which let me tell you, is not easy because after years and years of trying to convince editorial teams, upper management that does not look like you, that this is an important topic, whew, the cards are stacked against you. And if I can share this, there have been many days when I have woken up and there are multiple incidents of violence or of attacks that have been sent to me by sources or social media users, friends. And it is overwhelming. I know you all feel that right now as well. And it felt like I was doing something wrong because I was breaking the cardinal rule of journalism in sharing how I personally felt. Because as a human being, as an Asian American, as an American, period, how can we not feel these emotions? And I broke down on the air one day. I was crying in tears. And this happened as a mother in San Francisco pulled down her shirt and she showed me her heart monitor because her heart was broken. Her son, Kelvin, had been senselessly gunned down in the middle of the street. And that was just one of so many stories that propelled me to continue to do what I do with the support of everyone who is here. Because during this time, I have learned and <laughs> there are days when it feels like for each story, it's like two steps forward, but then 
the stories keep coming in and then it feels like we're going backwards. But the fact of the matter is, is we are still going forward. The world is listening. You are listening tonight and everyone is paying attention. So we need to seize this moment. The fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that Erica, you're in the position that you're in, the fact that we're all here means the work is making a difference. So for someone who is making that change on more of a grand scale, someone who has a, I did not realize, a direct line to the president of the United States and vice president Kamala Harris and so many more. Eric, what, Erica, what do you think? Should we get started? Let's let's, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> what I also love is over the course of getting to know you is that you're also a real person. You're not just someone who is in politics and is is a spokesperson. Um, you know, you live it, you see it, you believe it. Uh, when you were first appointed, this you mentioned this was the first of a kind role, um, f- and that comes with tremendous responsibility. So when you began, I know there was no playbook, there was no guidelines as to how to shape this. Can you share some of your goals um, for what you want to do during your time in the White House? And also, how can people here in the Bay Area um, partner with you to make your job a success? No, that's a, a really lovely way to, to start this conversation. Um, I mean, and, and, and it does harken back to, to what, you know, your, your story. And, and thank you for sharing that with us in terms of how, when the professional and the personal collide, it's an extraordinary moment. And it's, and, and it's, it's one of the things I think that brings us to this work. So, honestly and authentically. It also, it also asks us, it commands us to, to push ourselves a little bit beyond our comfort level. Um, and, um, and, and, and that's the moment that I find myself in, you know, I mean, my, my biography, and I think that, that they've shared it out, um, you know, might seem a little bit nonlinear to a lot of folks because I've been kind of doing a lot of work in the Senate and then, in, you know, as a lawyer and, and, that, and then in nonprofit organizations and now back, back to the government again. Um, but all of these things are like points of light that make up our whole um, that lead us to a moment like this. And, and, and I've, I've said this before, and I think that many of you, especially in movement, um, I'm, and, and everybody on the Zoom screen as well, you know, um, at the top of your professions, um, in extraordinary leadership positions with, with broad platforms, that, that this might be one of those turning points in, in the moment where we look back and we say that this was that pivot point for civil rights in the Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities. And it's not because um, I was, a, my position was created or I was appointed into it. Again, like I, I, I can't underscore that this is me executing on the president and the vice president's longstanding commitments and concerns for our communities. Um, maybe this position should have um, existed before, um, probably. Um, and what I, and what I can and 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 I don't do it alone. I do it again in cooperation, not just with the the White House Office of Public Engagement and the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Native Hawaiians, but also with community, with leaders, with thought leaders, with academics, but also community members. And that's that's so important because that input is is what I bring, not just my own lived experience, and not just my adjacency to other. Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities that are not a part of my lived experience, but also adjacency in coalition with other communities of color. 
Um, and, and that's um, a privilege and an honor to be able to take the commitment of, of, of the president and the vice president and um, build upon it. And, and, you know, there is, there is some um, precedent again, and, and I don't mean to belabor the point, but I, I don't want to take, you know, again, I'm not creating anything afresh. There, there have been very, very senior Asian Americans in the West Wing before, but they've had broad portfolios. Um, and I think many of us, um, if you're as old as me, those of you who are as old as me <laughs> would be able to appreciate what it's like to be the only Asian or the only woman or the only person of color in the room and have to carry that and represent that, even though you've got a job to perform on. Um, and so that's kind of a little bit of a, a, a vantage point, um, you know, in terms of um, that moment when I was selected for this position and welcomed into the White House. And it's not like I hang out with the president and the vice president every day, but yes, I, I do have occasion. Um, to advise them and to, and also to be educated by them, um, but also to broaden their fields of vision about um, what's important, um, how to be more inclusive, um, where there are corners that you wouldn't, that they aren't turning, um, and that they wouldn't know. I mean, the be brilliant, best of intention people. So goals, um, broadly speaking, are to represent, address, and prioritize the needs of the Asian American and Native Hawaiian. Um, Pacific Islander communities within the White House and make sure that I can be an internal advocate within the executive office of president and the chief of staff's office. But I also, because I sit in the West Wing, I've got all of the resources and camaraderie and collegiality of the other components of the White House and also in the agencies and also some access to community leaders in, in the corporate world too, philanthropy and in movements. Um, and that's an extraordinary honor. Um, and, you know, broad brush, you know, we, we all collectively work to identify and eliminate the, the policies and barriers that disadvantage AA and NHPIs. We obviously need to improve safety, access to justice and violence prevention for the AA and NHPI community, which, by the way, didn't just start 18 months ago. I think we all know that mainstream media, no offense, Neon, um, you know, has, 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 it's caught their imagination um, and, and, and which helps to propel it to the mindset in front of mind for policymakers. Um, but generally, we want to promote inclusion and belonging for AA and HPI communities and expanding public knowledge of our diverse cultures, languages, and histories. Um, and if you don't mind, I, you know, just a couple of examples. You know, there are, are large things, small things, and medium things that I strive for towards building this broader vision. Um, you know, to make sure that um, our experiences, our needs, our joys are taken into consideration and that the impacts of the administration's policies, where they relate and impact the Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander communities are communicated back out so that, so that our community members are able to take advantage of them. So there are large things like the acknowledgement that the AN and HPI community is unique and under acute threat right now but also has got a unique part of the American fabric of history and has made incredible contributions. So we get the passage and signing that COVID-19 hate crimes act in May, um, the reauthorization expansion and power um, and the actually more empowered um, White House initiative. We got to bring in civil rights leaders from the AAN and HPI communities to meet with the president and vice president last month. Um, and we're also continuing that concerted effort to tackle those intractable issues of health disparities, data desegregation and language access that have just, I've spent the entirety of my professional life talking about. 
I, I don't know if in 20 years we'll be able to look back and say, I've spent another 20 years talking about this. I mean, we're actually making strides towards um, tackling those. And there are also smaller things that are gonna be um, maybe less visible, but like very important to me because what it signifies to me is, is kind of the more internalization, the more awareness, the more normalization, the less invisibility of our communities. When we talk about things like the PRC or the CCP instead of the unintentionally clumsy but harmful reference to the Chinese, when we're talking about global economic competitive threats, human rights violations or security issues, um, another small thing that is subtle and nuanced, but I think makes a difference and it's the first ever inclusion of Native Hawaiians as an intentional naming the president's proclamation on Heritage Month and the renaming of the White House initiative to specifically name Native Hawaiians. Um, I want it to be a reflexive impulse to make sure that we're providing things in translation in language, um, which is, you know, sometimes after the fact, sometimes hard to do, but it should just be a reflex. And also to be mindful that when we look at the whole of the AA and NHPI category, our collective, um, that we recognize that it's also critical to think about the parts of the whole and to name and honor the differences within our community. Um, so that's kind of broad brush. I could talk, you know, for another 30 minutes on it, but I know that we've got um, questions that we want to address. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very good way to kind of put it all in a nutshell and a good reminder for everyone because we do have questions coming in rather fast and furiously um, that we want to try and get to as many of those as we can. But I do want to start off with a question that you sort of touched upon because you mentioned infrastructure. You mentioned right off the bat some of the accomplishments that the Biden administration has implemented early on. And this has been in the news, especially in the past few weeks, is that investment into infrastructure, a huge boost thanks to new policies. There is bipartisan support from Congress. Aside from the investment in hardware, how is this infrastructure investment going to help the lives of Asian American Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiians in specifics? Sure. And so that's part of that um, once in a generation investments, um, that visionary um, commitment to human infrastructure, um, the care economy, um, where we create, we don't, we, we create jobs and cut taxes and we lower costs for working families. Um, I um, recited a couple of the statistics about what this, what some of those provisions mean for the Native Hawaiian um, Pacific Islander and Asian American communities, but it also includes like lowering prescription drug costs. Um, you know, just things cost too too much. Americans pay two to three times more for their prescription drugs than people in other wealthy countries, and nearly one in four Americans struggle to afford prescription drugs. We want to lower those um, childcare costs. Um, that I've mentioned at the very, very top, and maybe it's just my the lens through which I look at the world, lowering healthcare costs, um, lowering higher education costs. Education beyond high school is increasingly important to succeed in the 21st century economy. Um, and so we've got investments in minority serving institutions for sure, but also more broadly, the pairing of that universal preschool that I mentioned is also accompanied by a universal right to two years of community college. Um, we want to lower the housing costs. And again, uh, Evan didn't mention this before, but uh, my service in the Obama administration wasn't part of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and Housing and Urban Development. I spent a lot of time on the Bay Area about affordable housing or 
actually in affordable housing. And so I know that that's top of mind for a lot of folks. Um, and uh, investments in workforce training, investments in those clean energy jobs, in teachers and schools. Um, Dion, there's there's a provision in, 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 in the human infrastructure um, um, proposal um, that does care and feeding of, of, of teaching rosters and core um, to foster more communities of color and encourage and nurture teachers of color. Um, there, I think there, I'm going to, I may get these stats wrong. So, so I'll, I'll try to clean that up before I send that to you for your research paper. Uh, I think 2.5% of teachers identify as Asian American, Native, Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander. Um, that's compared to 6% of our student population, our K through 12 student population who identify as Asian American Native points. And so we need to close that gap. Um, and so those are just a couple of examples about the real life family kitchen table um, investments that, that, that we're intending to make a difference in every, everybody's life, everybody's everyday life. Yeah, that's what I appreciate, that human level, something that people can all relate to. And I think that goes hand in hand very well with one viewer question that has come in that I would like to get to, because that would also help illustrate a little bit more about what you are like. The question is, to what extent, or rather, what have been the greatest personal challenges you have faced when it comes to bigotry. I know for me as a journalist, it is the naysayers, the people who do not believe the reporting or they refuse to believe that the hate exists and some of the challenges are prevalent in today's. Because after all, we do have to go uphill and really buck some of the things that America has been trained to believe over the past several years, if you catch my drift. So Erica, for you, what are some of the personal challenges that you faced and also the ones that you've seen that prevent you maybe necessarily from doing your job to the best you could? So I'd like to organize. Um... I know there's a lot to that question. Isn't I know. I <laughs> And then, like, um, kind of recline and then kind of, like, contemplate all of that. It's, it's important because, I mean, I ask myself that question every day, um, partially because it's, it's you know, um, important to stay resilient in my professional persona, but also because I'm a mom and I don't want my kids to grow up the way that many people are growing up today or even the way I grew up Um and, and there's also, again, that what I started with, Jan, in terms of our shared experience about the personal and the professional, like colliding a bit, um, is um, oh, and, uh, the challenges that I faced, and it's recurrent, um, is, number one, to recognize my own privilege and name that, um, and to try to navigate that once I've acknowledged that to make sure that I use that for good. Right. Um, you know, so again, like I get to take this, this really interesting government job <laughs> in public service to continue public service. It was a call back after, um, you know, I'd gone back into the private sector after 11 years in government. Um, uh, but it's important. And, and even when I was, um, out of government, you know, I was spending a lot of my volunteer time, working um, on civil rights and Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander empowerment. Um, so that's on the, on the one hand, like a, a, ch a challenge to myself to recognize how fortunate I am. Um, 
but at the same time, um, not always having the platform to do everything that I want to be, to get done because, you know, I, I, I may be welcomed into black spaces and welcomed into white spaces, which is an honor, but I'm still a guest. Um, and, um, and so throughout my career and I, I hope I'm older than I look, but it's, it's been a long career. Um, it's, um, you know, implicit bias and explicit bias are everywhere when you're operating in Washington, DC in law and politics, um, in a dominant culture, um, context. And so, you know, using the privilege that I have, but also acknowledging and needing to find different ways to navigate um, those powers that would still suppress and oppress, particularly because I, I labor under multiple identities um, that are not privileged compared in comparison to other folks. Um, you know, that's that's a big part of, of kind of a recurring challenge. I've got a lot of examples um, that I won't belabor now, but that's kind of a broad brush of the recurring kind of um, contemplation that I've had. There was a second part to it, Dion, and I apologize. I lost the thread. That's all right. I always feel like people can only understand one question at a time, but then you get onto a roll. So we actually have a lot more. So perhaps this is a good segue. Well, this, the second part, the second part, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind answering the second part. I just, um, I just, I'm losing my voice for a second. So I just, yeah, <laughs> here, let me scroll through some of them. Let's see, you know, some of the greatest personal challenges you faced when it comes to bigotry, because that personal, I think, connection is so important because you describe yourself, I had read an article, as fourth generation one, you know, I, I think it was for, fourth generation Chinese, fifth generation it's, Japanese. It's the inverse, yeah. It's the inverse. Oh, the opposite the way. <laughs> but, you know, did that play a, a role in maybe the way that you've dealt with some of the bigotry? I'm sure you have, because people maybe make misconceptions that you are one thing when you are actually something more all-encompassing. No, for sure. And um, and one of the things that informs that, uh, I mean, my family's been in this country for, you know, as much as 150 years. Um, and, and there's some teeny tiny blood droplets that are like older than that, um, that, uh, um, but, but growing, I, I grew up in Hawaii where there really is no racial majority per se, but there are power structures. And so, um, you know, I have said this before, I, I didn't realize I was Asian American. I didn't realize that I was a progressive. I didn't realize I was, I was an activist. I didn't realize that growing up, you know, in a single uh, mom household, but being cared by aunties and all sets of grandparents was, you know, that was just, that, that's, that was everybody's life there, right? And so moving to the mainland, um, the continental lower 48, the continental U.S., that was um, something that um, strikes me a lot um, in terms of, of bigotry, um, because it's 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 so stark and it's 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 visual, it's observable, and you're targeted because of those observable visibilities. And one of the things that I pride myself in is constantly being surprised by when it when it emerges. Um, I, you know, I, <laughs> um, and it's not because I'm so pure of heart or innocent. It's just, you know, when, when it, when it crops up and where it crops up is, is always shocking. Um, and, uh, you know, depending if I'm with my little kids, like I have to make a decision whether to call it out and how to call it out to defend myself or to duck my head down and try to scuttle into safety. And those are really, really big challenges, I think. Um, you know, and, and that's just me as a mom in the streets. 
um, no longer takes the bus, honestly. I mean, I don't take public transportation these days, um, not yet. Um, and it's not just because of the pandemic and those risks, it's because of racism. Um, but also, you know, sometimes, sometimes in professional settings, right, where where what some what we used to call microaggressions or casual racism, it's been exposed. It's been exposed, Jan. It's it's we can't call it that anymore because it's it's been that that it's been under that thin veneer of of hate and disrespect and being the perpetual foreigner and being the easy target that's led to this kind of escalation um, where there's been a permission structure and we can name what it was, um, but a permissiveness. Um, an instigation of, of actual targeting where it's it's erupting into the public spaces in, in physical and violent and existential ways. Yeah. For so long, it has been festering under the surface. And you hit the nail on the head because this is not a new phenomenon. I learned that over the course of reporting where people would say over and over again, this is decades old and it dates back to the time of the railroads, the Exclusion Act. This is deeply rooted in American history. So I'm really glad you touched upon that point. Something else that I would like to bring up because I am very cognizant of time is this goes hand in hand with something one of our viewers has asked, um, the achievements of Asian Americans. And Asian Americans, we know, have played such a broad role in tech companies. I bring that up because we are in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. You know, we're talking about Jerry Yang founding Yahoo, Eric Guan founding Zoom, the platform we're using right now back in 2011. But we see time and time again the downplay of the leading role these Asians are playing because of that discrimination, because of that implicit bias, because of that anti-Asian sentiment. Whether it's to the surface in an overt way or not, it is still happening. And that goes along with what one of our viewers wants to know, what current achievements of Asian Americans are least known, least appreciated. So I know that's another twofold question, but I think they go hand in hand, don't they? No, they absolutely do. And it's not just the invisibilization or the perpetual. I, I, one of the things that's been like remarkable to me is how we can be so invisible and yet so scapegoated. Like it's, it's all, it's, it's all, all, it's the flip side of the same coin. And, and, and these two like oppositional truths actually coexist with each other, which is just like, I didn't know that that could happen, but here we are. Um, so, I mean, in terms of like the extraordinary contributions that folks like Mr. Yang has brought and 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 built and, and people that we don't even see, um, not because um, just because of, of their roles in building and innovating, um, and fueling our economy and building our communities, um, not just for the Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community, but for the broad community and for the broad national economy and our global competitiveness. It's extraordinary, and and I know that we're talking about Silicon Valley. Um, Specifically, but I mean, it, it also goes for celebrity, uh, movie stars, artists, storytellers, um, and politicians. And and what we've seen, I hope, is a pushback on that, and and you know, an intentionality in trying to build that, build the table bigger, and build that bench stronger, so that we're not invisible, so that more people have adjacent experiences and awareness of what our experiences and what our contributions are. I hope that it invites more aggressive curiosity and inquisitiveness about um, our history, 
because it's, it's actually quite extraordinary. And again, to be inclusive and, and, and but also name our and honor our differences, the Asian American community is not a monolith, nor is Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community a monolith. And the contributions that our communities have made, whether we've been here for 180 years or for five years, are extraordinary. And and um, and I think that it's it's part of that socialization, it's part of that that grit that we have. Um, as a community, as a collective community, especially when we're powerful as a collective, um, that'll help to abate that. And, and, and just another, just tiny plug there. This is why representation matters, right? Um, because the more successes that we see, the more grit that we see out of those successful folks and to see them use their platforms more broadly and to bring other folks with them to mentor and to build that backbench. Um, I think that that's the um, pathway. I mean, in the meantime, it, we do suffer trauma. And it is this moment where we decide whether to turn inwards and be a little bit tribal and, and hurt or whether we can burst out. And that's one of the reasons why um, I know that he, he had to leave. But, um, you know, leadership like the Assemblyman Lowe is, is so important because um, like that's that's this turning point that I see in terms of movement and power building for us. I've always known that the Asian American Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community was powerful, but but now the rest of the world gets to know about it too. If they give this, if they give themselves the chance that benefit. Yeah, it goes with that idea of visibility again, because mentioning Hollywood like you just did, Shang-Chi, everyone is talking about it. And finally, I spoke to a young father who told me last week that he can take his son to the movies and he has to realize that he doesn't have to be a scientist, a doctor, a lawyer, like my own parents wanted and wished that I would be, but he too could be a superhero. He doesn't have to feel like he is not included in the conversation conversation. So yeah, it is about having that seat at the table, which I absolutely love. We are getting another question in from an audience member uh, that I would like to address. This person wants to know, there are a number of undocumented immigrants in our AANHPI community. How can we help our undocumented DACA students especially address the stigma of being undocumented? So I think I think it's it's community building like this where um, that's that's critical. I mean, I, I guess I, I should start by saying, you know, let's let's change those policies. <laughs> um, and, and so it's not an exhortation for anybody to lobby because I can't do that. But like, you know, I mean, bringing, raising these stories, there are, there are legal solutions that, that don't yet exist that, that could. Um, and I think that that's really important. And I think that the storytelling and, and the power of collective advocacy on behalf of folks, you know, who, who isn't, a, you know, I mean, these aren't your stories. These are people that you know and care about and that nobody else knows about because many of them have gone underground and they are so valuable. I mean, the, the, the DACA students um, that I've met are, are just extraordinary, um, both in terms of, again, their grit and, and their fortitude and their brilliance, but the contributions that they're making Right now, right now on the front lines of the pandemic, mostly, you know, I mean, um, but but the other thing that I would commend is is this kind of community building. It's, I mean, particularly when folks feel isolated and alone, they don't need to. And there's no more welcoming in the Aloha spirit to be brought into an Ohana, um, just to borrow some of Dennis and my, like, you know, old lingo from Hawaii, um, you know, um, to, to help to shore up the strength and courage 
that's needed in these moments, um, particularly while other folks need to take up the mantle and, and, and give them voice, um, not because they don't have power of their own, but because, you know, it's, it's, it, it is, um, they're suffering trauma right now and fear and uncertainty. So I really appreciate that question. It's, it's, it's something that, um, you know, we, we talk about, I was going to say every day, but sometimes multiple times a day. Wow. That's why I wanted to bring it up because I think you even spoke of it briefly telling these stories and to storytellers. And this actually plays into a question that also just came in is how does your position interact with the media? And if so, what would you like the media to report that they may be missing? Whew, I can attest we are missing a lot. <laughs> it's just a unfortunate byproduct of the media landscape that we're in. So if you had a wish list, what would you like to see more of and what, what needs to be represented more besides these DACA stories or stories in regards to young people like that? Sure. I mean, and, and that does tie back a little bit to, you know, our earlier discussion about representation because, because it's, 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 um, sometimes, um, when you're invisibilized, when you invisibilize yourself and, 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 you know, I mean, that, that was part of my upbringing, right. Is to not be, um, and for the Japanese Americans out there, you'll understand not be the nail that sticks up because those are the ones that get the hammer. Um, and for those, um, who were raised by, um, you know, grandparents, like I was, you know, post-World War II, I mean, that was a necessity for survival is to integrate and to, to try to slink away. Um, but now that, that time is not now. Um, and it's actually something that I struggle with to break free of, um, so I'll take your advice, Dion, about how to do this better too. Um, but, but surfacing these stories that have been underground gives people the um, awareness that, that, that they may not have been touched by before. And as these stories grow, community also grows because they find each other, right? These storytellers find each other and you see these threads that are, that are, are pretty fascinating and, and breathtaking to see the linkages um, of disparate people who have been like maybe geographically isolated um and and so it's 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 those stories that i think are 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 really important for mainstream media to be much more curious about um i i understand the prerogative of your newsrooms um to be able to chase the story of the day and the thing that's hot um but just because it's not covered in the press doesn't mean that the problem's gone away and and here i'll go back to um you know the spike in anti-asian violence and hate um you know, we're not seeing it on mainstream media anymore. It's not the, it's not the story of the day, but that doesn't mean that the problem's gone away. It also means that the work hasn't stopped. Um, and both of those things I think are worthy of, of continuing to track. Um, both because, you know, Dan, I think you just reported on, on some more attacks, right? And I, I spend, you know, eight of my 16 hour work days, you know, on, on hate. Um, even if it doesn't surface yet to, to the reportable kind of um, level. Yeah. And even just recently, I think it was after AAPI Heritage Month, which is every year in May, there was a meeting where a number of my own team, and I'm not saying this as a knock to anyone, it's just because people don't know what it's like because they've never been in this space like I've been, 
a number of people said, oh, well, things are going to die down or things aren't going to be as bad. Even just today, I had someone say to me, I won't say who, that it could be a viewer, it could be someone within my organization, said, it seems like it's not as bad. And every time I hear that, it pushes me to want to tell more stories and to dig deeper and to find more of them to prove that wrong. Because just because the month is over doesn't mean that the work is over. And I know we're running short on time, but this question that just came in, what are the concrete steps that this administration is taking to address this anti-Asian hate? I know there have been a number of steps, but are there some examples that are tangible that you could provide? Sure. So, um, like a lot, <laughs> a lot. The administration has taken a, a number of critical steps to combat anti-Asian discrimination, starting from, from the top down. And I kind of recited a couple of those things at, at the top or, you know, about the, the president's executive order um, on racial equity on his first day and his first week presidential memorandum that like talks about um, systemic racism. Like this is a president who can say systemic racism and white supremacy. Um, but that first week um, memorandum was specific to the Asian American and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities. And it um, outlines a number of commands that built both on that first day racial equity order. Um, now I'm starting, sorry, I'm starting to sound like a bureaucratic lawyer. So I'm going to like try to calm down for a second. But, but this is what I mean. Um, you, but... you recognize it <laughs> and you dial it back a little bit. But, um, you know, and, and so, so, you know, we, we, um, and, and we continue to toil on this every day and, and we work in close conjunction with, with not just our other agency partners who have different levers in community, but also the community leaders, which I think is really, really important. And it's, it's data driven as well. And there are some times that the data just reaffirms what we've known, but it resurfaces it. So like the Department of Justice just released um, early, actually, it's 2020 reporting on hate crimes and hate crimes are a different level than hate incidents. Um, it rises to a little bit of a different level and it's underreported, but hate crimes against Asian Americans in 2020 spiked 70%. Um, and, and that's a call to action right there. I mean, if it, again, just to the back to the last question, if it starts to fade away from public imagination and attention, this is, this is the reminder about the call to action. Um, and it's one that we're very mindful of. And, and even though you don't, hear about it a lot. There's a lot of work that's, that's, that's underway, including the implementation of the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act um, that the president um, had the honor of signing into law in May. Yeah. All right. It's about two to three minutes left of our program. And I do want to get this last question in from our audience because it's one that comes up often. What are the greatest misunderstandings about the AAPI community. And if I could say that the model minority myth is something that I've always known has existed as someone who grew up as the only Asian American in very rural parts of America, but did not know that it had a specific name and a history behind it. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about those misunderstandings and why what you're doing is so crucial. Great. Okay, two minutes, right? So, um, yes, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the flip side of that coin again, the perpetual foreigner and the model minority myth, but also the lack of data disaggregation where we're considered a monolith when the Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community is rich and diverse and gorgeous, but really, really different. 
Um, and so it's not just for the East Asians who have labored for several generations um, under the model minority myth where we're um, presumed to be adjacent to white power um, and given that privilege um, and have made successes, but that defies and, and belies the experience of many other Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders. And so, you know, one of the intentionalities that, that, that this administration is bringing into it is, is to be deliberatively more inclusive. And this is my honor. Um, and one of the things that I'm proudest of, you know, it's not just East Asians, we need to be more intentional about reaching out to Southeast Asians and Pacific Islanders and being sure to include folks of the Muslim, Sikh, Hindu and Buddhist faiths. And also mindful about the intersection of multiple identities of AN and HPIs who may be disabled, LGBTQ plus veteran, biracial, and, and and of the growing generational shifts and perspectives and needs. And I'm here, I'm not just talking about like grandparents to aunties, to kids, to grandkids. Um, but also how we came to this country, whether we traveled here because of opportunity or necessity generations ago or half a generation ago, or we fled as refugees or migrants, or we were colonized and annexed. Um, and so all of those things I think are really deeply impacted, but you only gave me two minutes beyond because we're at time. Um, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of misunderstandings about us. Um, and I think that, you know, giving, forum through through your platform, through the Commonwealth Club's platform. I'll do my part. I know that everybody who's spent Friday evening with us cares about it at least enough to have this in the background while they're, you know, in drive time or whatever. Um, that that we'll all do our part to make sure that we um, our stories are told, that we're no longer invisible and that we we fight for our power. We keep our power and we advance it. Yeah, I hope everyone takes those last words and keeps them close to the heart because during those times when we wonder what's happening and what's next, it's always a very good reminder. Oh boy, I can't believe we're already out of time. I feel like we could go a whole other hour. We've just scratched the surface of the prepared questions and the questions that are coming in from our audience. So to you, Erica, my deepest thanks to the Commonwealth Club, of course, and to none other than Mr. Dennis Wu, who was so instrumental in making this happen. Dennis, I think it's time we turn it over to you. <clears throat> Thank you, Dion, and mahalo, Erica. I also want to thank, again, our promotional partners, Ding TV, Ascend, AAPI Silicon Valley, Asian American Parents Association, Bay Area Chinese Radio, Bay Area Youth, Civic Leadership Academy, Heista, Impression Art Culture, Indian Cult Currents, KTST 26, Mountie Jade West, National Asian American United, The Mentoring Club. Many thanks again to all of you for joining us tonight. Good night and mahalo. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 